Let us pray. Help us, good Heavenly Father, to rejoice in the actuality of the resurrection of your Son so that we may grow more and more in our understanding of what this event has accomplished for us. Help us never to doubt the reality of that awesome event and, as importantly, help us to shape our behavior so that it is consonant with that reality. We pray in Jesus' most holy name. Amen. Please be seated. The resurrection of Jesus after his execution on a cross is the preeminent event in sacred history. Were it not for this event, his actual resurrection, there'd be no reason for me to be standing here today. But he was resurrected, not resuscitated, and by that I mean he could never die again. And that makes all the difference. Anyone with an open mind simply must give serious consideration to this event. I say that with personal conviction because over the years I've reflected many times on the fact that so many millions of folks have heard the story and with the help of the Holy Spirit have believed and have had their lives altered irrevocably. And this fact has influenced me greatly. And that's why I'm standing here today. I believe that I have a mandate to preach and teach about Jesus Christ and what he has done for humankind. But now, it's after our celebration of the event, and we are led to examine certain post resurrection events. Our gospel from John today includes such events. As always, we must ask, how does this passage fit into the big picture? Is it important? Does it add anything to salvation history, to the good news? Let us look at the key elements of the passage. I shall read it again because it is rather pithy. And this is John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. I believe that today's gospel is extremely important to the trajectory established by the resurrection event. Three crucial things occur in this short passage. 
There might be four, but you're supposed to say three, so we'll go with three. First off, John tells us that Christ appeared in the midst of his disciples. He was suddenly there one minute where he hadn't been a moment before. And it is at least implied that the door to the room where they had assembled was locked. From this, we must deduce that the body of the Lord was somehow changed. Now, this sounds rather ghostly, doesn't it? But really, he had a body. We can only conclude that he was embodied in a new way. Luke's gospel makes it quite clear that he was no ghost. Jesus questions why the disciples think he might be an apparition, adding that they should look at his hands and feet and that they should touch him. Jesus notes that a ghost does not have flesh and bones, and note it is in Luke that we read this. Luke should know he was a physician. To certify even further that Christ had a body, Luke does what? He has him eat a piece of cooked fish. Here, I must emphasize that it was very important for Christ to be seen after the crucifixion and entombment. It was not enough that the tomb was found to be empty. With all that had taken place and with the various factions that had an interest in Christ, his body could have been removed and placed elsewhere. To seal the deal, and I mean no disrespect with that phrase, he had to be seen by his followers. The immediately preceding passage where Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb and does not find Jesus is not enough. It does not cut it. She needed to see Jesus too. And again, we see that he is at first unrecognizable to Mary Magdalene. To her too, his body must appear different. She recognizes him by his voice. And then the other bookend to our passage has Doubting Thomas. This disciple was not present when Jesus appeared in the locked room. And Thomas is indeed a skeptic. He wants to have an up-close and personal look at the crucifixion wounds. Parenthetically, some of you may have at one time or another been as skeptical as Thomas. And so it is for you too that Jesus showed his wounds. This appearance gives witness that Jesus is indeed who he says he is. The second important element in the passage is what Jesus said. After twice giving that everyday Eastern greeting, peace be to you, he gives a commission to the disciples, saying that just as his heavenly Father has sent him, he is sending them. Some have called this pronouncement of the Lord the charter of the church. It seems clear that Jesus is saying to them that he needs the church to be his body. The Apostle Paul saw things this way. 
in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. As William Barclay, whom I've quoted many times, the pesky Presbyterian, says, Jesus here is admitting his dependence on the church. The church needs to be a mouth for Jesus, feet to run upon his errands, and hands to do his work. There's a wonderful little affirmation that I discovered a few years ago, credited to St. Teresa of Avila, that says all this very well. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. Yours are the only hands with which he can do his work. Yours are the only feet with which he can go about the world. Yours are the only eyes through which his compassion can shine forth upon a troubled world. Christ has no body on earth now but yours. This charter of the church also means that the church needs Jesus. Anyone who is sent out needs someone to send him. He needs a message to deliver, and he needs power behind the message. Let's remember that without Jesus, the church has no message. Finally, let us note that Jesus was always perfectly obedient and loving to his heavenly Father. This behavior, as you well know, is well described throughout the fourth gospel. But there's a message for us as part of the church here. The church must follow suit. It must love and obey Jesus 100%. The church must never be out to propagate her own message. The church fails miserably when it tries to solve its own problems without the guidance of Jesus Christ. I believe that much of the revisionist behavior of churches in the last many years demonstrates this very well. We must behave under the authority of Scripture. Anything dealing with morals and ethics that is not in accord with Holy Scripture is simply conjectural. The third and final element in the passage about which I will com comment is Jesus breathing on the disciples saying, receive the Holy Spirit. John speaking this way suggests strongly that he had in mind the passage in Genesis where God breathes the breath of life into the nostrils of the man he had created. And also, possibly the Ezekiel passage read by Stephen this morning, where God breathed life into the dry bones. The breath of Christ and the Holy Spirit, delivered thereby, gives new life to the disciples. And it provides life to the church as well, equipping her for her many tasks. 
Now, if you know scripture, and I know some of you do, some of you know some, <laughs> you must at this point wonder whether this giving of the Holy Spirit is the same as the coming of the Spirit in the second chapter of the Acts of, at Pentecost. Smarter folks than we have wondered about this, and the conclusion appears to be that these are two separate and distinct events, not simply two gospel writers interpreting the same event through different lenses. Rod Whitaker, a professor of mine at Trinity, believes that this first mention of the coming of the Holy Spirit is certainly climactic, but only preliminary. He notes in that there is a period of time before the event in Acts, during which the disciples are back fishing for fish and not disciples, they have not, that they have really not begun to respond appropriately to the commission that Jesus gave. Our passage, then, is only in anticipation of the giving of the Spirit in Acts. The Spirit will be given definitively after Jesus returned to the Father, and that event has not occurred. As Whitaker says, it appears that Jesus' giving of the Spirit is a complex process and not a simple one-time event. John, in our passage, seems to be filling in details not given by Luke in Luke-Acts regarding the beginning of the disciples' new life and ministry. Continuing, Whitaker affirms the idea that the mission of the church, the charter, as I called it earlier, is inaugurated, but not actually begun. We might say that John here is describing the conception of the church and Luke acts the birth. Well, I did say that the passage is pithy. And as one begins to look over pithy passages, one finds all kinds of things to ponder. No more peace, that's it. I would suggest that we simply be thankful for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His post-resurrection appearances make the event real. And we should be thankful for the charter that has been presented here to us, the church. And finally, we should see the breathing of the Holy Spirit as an anticipation of the Pentecost event that we will be celebrating in a few short weeks. So let's pick up the ball and run with it. We've got the mandate to go out and do the work of Christ in our world. With that message, from such a messenger, we must not fail. Amen. <laughs>